0: As you know, some of you know, I've been on a plane to England in the last few weeks, and sometimes you can't help but see what the person in the seat in front of you is watching, right? So the bloke in front of me, was he, he just watched a string of horrible, violent, gory movies. And if he wasn't watching them, he was playing this computer game on his laptop that let him kill people. Our world is saturated with violence. Some people take delight in it at a sort of distant level, but our world is saturated in violence too because we're full of warfare. And it's the everyday of experience of people uh, to to be surrounded by conflict and war. Well, God has an opinion about that, and he's going to put a stop to it, and we see it in this passage. Now, I, um, I read a few books a couple of years ago. Um, I, I read a, a string of books recounting the experiences of prisoners of war. And uh, they were all prisoners of the Japanese, So one was written, or two of them were written by Scots, and one was written by an Australian. But uh, one of these books, one, one thing they all had in common was that through various means, in each of the different contexts in which these prisoners was found, the prisoners themselves knew that the war was coming to an end. The Japanese didn't tell them, but sometimes they smuggled a radio in, and they had that so they could hear broadcasts. Uh, but the Americans started to drop leaflets over the camps. And so the guards changed in their attitude to the prisoners who up until now they'd been incredibly cruel towards. They denied them food. They wouldn't give them their letters. One of the stories I read said that when it was obvious that the war was coming to a close, the Japanese guards gave them parcels that had been sent three years earlier where all the food was rotten. Right. Well... Against that backdrop, it wasn't. It just sort of unfolded gradually. But uh, Ernest Gordon, in his book Miracle on the River Choir, says this, our first visitor from the outside world was an American paratrooper who had lost his way and wandered into our camp. So not exactly a dignified arrival. Uh, an American paratrooper had lost his way and wandered into our camp. We wondered what he must have made of us as he was seized by a yelling crowd of skinny, bronzed, bearded, half-naked savages who bore him on their shoulders through the camp. For hours, we bombarded him with questions while he recounted step by step the entire course of the war, regaling us with everything that had happened during our three and a half years of silence. To us, he was the living embodiment of the freedom that we had longed for all that time. So here's this American paratrooper. He doesn't even know where he is, but he turns up and he's the embodiment of freedom to these people that had been in dreadful conditions in prison for three and a half years. And if I'm sparing you a lot of agony. If you read the book, you'll discover just how awful it was to be a prisoner in the Second World War. Now, imagine if someone had said, we're not interested in hearing from you. Your clothes are a bit shabby. That wouldn't make any sense at all, would it? Here's a bloke who's flown in. He's probably... Been in the jungle a day or two, he's lost his way, but he finds his way to this camp. Imagine if they said to him, we'd listen to you if your clothes were a bit tidier, if you were a bit more neatly dressed. That would be foolish. He was the living embodiment of the message of freedom, no matter what condition he came to these uh, these prisoners with. That's a little bit like what we're finding here in Isaiah 63. The living embodiment of freedom is someone who's dressed in clothes that are stained with blood. Now, Isaiah 56 verse 1, turn back there very quickly, it's not too many pages back, but just see how this last major section of the book Isaiah finishes. Isaiah 56 verse 1, Thus says the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. God is going to bring peace to the world and it's going to be a saving piece. It's going to be him working to save people. He's going to reveal his righteousness. Righteousness is that way of saying that God is right through and through. There's no wrong in God. He is right, and he does what's right. But it's also quite clear from the passages we've been looking at over the last few weeks that there's going to be some waiting involved, that that God's righteousness and justice are not going to be done immediately. There will be a period of waiting, which will be a period of testing and a period that we we, uh, we we trust in God. Now, chapter 68 that Nathan preached last week in verse 8, we read there, the Lord has sworn by his right hand and his mighty arm. Now, the right hand is the hand that they used to hold a sword in. That was the fighting hand. His mighty arm means his whole arm's going to be involved. This is a way of God saying, this will be done this is going to happen. Yahweh sworn by his right hand and his mighty arm. Chapter 62 is a glimpse of the world as it will be. It's a glimpse of the world that deep down we all long for as life should be. God's going to re-establish a world of righteousness. He's going to establish his people as righteous people and part of that means that they'll be secure from their enemies. So long as there are enemies around people will never feel safe and secure and so God the warrior is going to deal with all the threats that come to his people. But then in the words of the Australian commentator Barry Webb a terrible scene bursts upon us with the suddenness of the day of judgment and that's chapter 63. So we go from this vision of the coming world where things are as they should be and now we meet one in verse chapter sixty three. One who who is this? Who comes from Edom, in crimson garments from Bosra? He who is in splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. So there's two things that Isaiah the prophet notices, and he asks two questions: Who is this? Well, he's come from Edom. Edom were the traditional enemies of Israel, God's people. Edom were the people who were descended from Esau, Jacob's brother. Remember Jacob back in the book of Genesis? Jacob had his name changed to Israel. So all of his descendants were called the children of Israel or Israelites. But Esau had another name. His other name was Edom. And all of his descendants were known as Edomites. And the Israelites and the Edomites had this ancient hostility towards each other. The Edomites hated the descendants of Jacob. And so they often fought with them. And when the Babylonians came in to destroy Jerusalem, we learn that the Edomites, according to the book of the prophet Obadiah, the Edomites actually took the side of the Babylonians against their relatives. And they helped the Babylonians destroy Jerusalem. And so to say that this person has come from Edom looking as though he's been in a battle means he's been dealing with people who are, are a symbol people that hate God's people and hate God himself so Edom is like a a symbol it's like a catch-all for people that are the enemies the opponents of those who love God but this one who's coming from Edom and Bosra is the capital of Edom um, this one who's coming from Edom Isaiah notices two things about him he's splendid in his apparel and he's marching in the greatness of his strength so he's wearing splendid apparel that's a a phrase that suggests that this person is a king because back in those days to have splendid apparel was a pretty rare thing and not many people had it so this is a description of a king and he's a king who marches in the greatness of his strength to say that he's a great king means that he has extraordinary power it's power that goes beyond the ordinary great power but he's been fresh for he's come fresh from a battle victory And so um, the answer to that first question of who is this, this king in his splendid apparel answers, he says, it is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. So we've got a picture here of a great and a righteous king. That means a king who always acts rightly, whose might is not just for warfare, but he's strong to save. So this is a king that you'd want to be on the right side of. You'd want to be on his team. Because he's mighty in righteousness. He's mighty in warfare, but he's mighty to save. Now, if our, if our country, if Mafra was under a military threat, if that was the case, what kind of king would it be a relief to be under? If we, we were threatened in Mafra and we were waiting for the cavalry to arrive, we'd want someone who was going to restore peace and order, wouldn't we? And then maintain it, not just for a short time, but forever. We want someone who can restore peace and save us from the threat that we're currently under. That's what's pictured in these verses here. You see, the thing is people can't be safe so long as their enemies remain because what the enemies do if the warfare is conducted in a way that means that they can scuttle off they'll go away and rearm they'll go away and retrain they'll hide somewhere and do it all over again when they can what we have here is a picture of god dealing fully and finally with everything that disrupts peace and which causes discomfort to his people there's going to come a day when God is going to say enough, enough challenges to my reign, enough threats to my people. I'm going to deal with it. So there's a second question in verse two. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the wine press? What is, so the question is, what have you just been fighting for? Well, the answer comes in verse three. I have trodden the wine press alone and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. Now this is a war that no one but this king could fight. There was no one who could help him. No one had the sufficient might. No one had the sufficient righteousness to wage this war. But this king is so mighty, he can win one-handed. And so he's, he's waged this gruesome war which ended in the death of his opponents. And the death is likened to the the crushing of grapes to produce wine. Now, Red grapes produce red juice, and it's a reminder of blood. Now, the third question uh, isn't asked, but it's suggested. But this one speaking answers it anyway. Why did he do all this? Verse 4. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. So what he's doing is a combination of vengeance and redemption. Redeeming means to purchase something back. It means to pay a price for the release of something. Vengeance means to repay in kind and to do it justly. Now who would you trust with the task of vengeance? Someone who is unrighteous? someone who is wrong through and through you can trust vengeance to a god who is good and righteous and true who always does what's right a good king will always reward those who do what's right and will punish justly those who do what's wrong that's what a good king does and that's the kind of ruler that we really need And so in verse five, we read, I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath and I poured out their lifeblood on earth. Now, this is a picture of military conquest. It's ugly, but that's what war is. But we're caught in a conflict and we need a solution. Now, there's a reiteration here this war was one that no one else could fight so this warrior king has, has fought it on his own uh, but the strength that he had was just as much as was needed and so the evidence of the triumph of this king is that his garments are stained with the blood of those that he's, um, who, who have confronted him. So we need to ask the question well who just who is this? You see that the secure conditions of chapter 62 depend on this warrior king doing what's just been described you can't have 62 if you won't have 63 one flows into the other well who is this well, flick back to chapter 59 but keep your thumb in chapter 63 hopefully these words have reminded you of something in chapter 59 at verse 15 Yahweh looks, Yahweh, the Lord God, saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. Have you ever noticed that justice is lacking in our world? Have you ever seen any situation saying that should be put right? And when those who are charged with the task of putting things right don't do it, it makes me feel angry and I reckon it probably does you as well. But Yahweh looks, he sees it, displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. And so we've had this picture of Yahweh saying enough, I'm going to do something about it. We don't know when he's going to deal fully and finally with these things, but we do know he will. And notice that he does it on his own. So I think that we get a, there's a real similarity between the words in 59 and these words that we've just read in chapter 63. And this peace that he's going to win is going to come to the whole world. But directly after chapter 59, verse 15, that we've just been reading there, we get to verses 20 to 21. So look at them. And we read there that a redeemer will come to Zion, someone who's going to pay a price for the release of captives. A redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turned from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant, says the Lord, my spirit that is upon you and my words that I've put in your mouth shall not depart. Now, this Redeemer is the one that's being spoken to here, and I think the Redeemer, the one that God says is going to be equipped with the Holy Spirit and with his words, I think that's the person who's speaking in chapter 63. But what we find here is there's such a close correspondence with what God says he's going to do and what he says the Redeemer has to do it leaves us with the question well who can this redeemer be because it sounds like he's a human who is God a human who does exactly what God says he's going to do now I said last time a couple of weeks ago and I was preaching on Isaiah 61 that the evidence is there that Jesus regarded himself as that redeemer and so he took the words of Luke 61 and preached them as though they applied to him He says, today you've heard these things fulfilled. We can say with confidence, the person speaking those words in chapter 63 of Isaiah is Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who is mighty to save. He's the one with the bloodstained garments. He's the one, the only one who can do what God says must be done to secure peace. And so what we have in chapter 63 is the, the final piece of the puzzle of the one that Jewish people were expecting as their Messiah. Back in chapter 11, we've, we've read about one who will come in the fam- from the family of the great King David, the anointed ruler. In chapters 40 to 55, we read about a servant who will suffer the, for the sins of other people, a servant who will lay down his life, For the sins of others. Having no sins of his own to confess, he'll lay down his life for the sins of others. And now we read about an anointed, Holy Spirit filled Redeemer who will speak God's words and who will act to execute God's justice. All of these three people are bound up and they're Jesus. So when Jesus comes, he's the fulfilment of all these three character portraits that have been put forward in the book of the prophet Isaiah. Now we can have this confirmed to us. When Jesus was raised from the dead, uh, Thomas the doubter, when he met Jesus and was privileged to touch him, he declared before him, my Lord and my God. The disciples came to understand, having met and ate with Jesus for three years, that he was more than a man. He was the embodiment of all their hopes. He was God in the flesh. He was god and human not 50 50 100 100 completely god completely human because he was god he was righteous because he's human he can die he was uniquely qualified only jesus could pay the price that secures true freedom only jesus because he was god and a human could do what it took to restore God's reign of righteousness and peace on earth, the peace that we are longing for. Now flip through to the very back of the book, Revelation 19. Keep your finger in Isaiah 63, just in case we need to look at it again. But Revelation chapter 19, we're going to preach through the rest of Revelation next year, God willing. But in Revelation 19, the Apostle John, in one of his visions, the chapter... Revelation 19 verse 11 John sees heaven opened and behold a white horse now listen well to or read well the the description of the one who's seated on the white horse and see if it reminds you of anything the one sitting on it is called faithful in true and in righteousness he judges and makes war his eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. John knew that that one on the white horse is the Lord Jesus and he uses language from Isaiah to describe what Jesus has done. Now when, I was, when Jesus came the first time, his first recorded public utterance when he was in the synagogue in, in Capernaum in Luke chapter 4, he says, today you've heard Isaiah 61 fulfilled in your presence. But he left a bit out. Because Isaiah 61 talks about the day of vengeance and Jesus skipped that. And he says, you've heard these words fulfilled. He was coming with God's message of peace. He was this one who came ahead of time to say, you can be put right with God. You don't have to live in fear of judgment day. You can come to know that your sins have been forgiven. If you give in now and submit to the righteous reign of God, Jesus first coming to earth was the announcement of peace, which is good news. His next coming, because he's promised to return, his next appearance will be to execute God's vengeance. Now make no mistake, this is unpopular stuff. There'll be some of you railing against me right now saying, that can't be, it is. This is gospel truth. God has a day when he is going to judge all of his enemies and it will be done in perfect righteousness. Because God is a holy God, a pure God, a true God. He is the giver of every good and perfect gift and his human creation has squandered those and created a world of conflict and turmoil, a world that is in opposition to him. The nations are raging. The nations are saying, leave us alone, we can do this ourselves. But God is a king who will not be challenged. And so that's why the Bible uses imagery of warfare because it's just that serious to hold out against God is a fool's errand God is patient he sent his son the Lord Jesus to say this is the way to peace put your trust in me accept that my death was for you I poured out my blood so that your sins could be forgiven because the wages of sin is death and that uh, there has to be a price paid has to be that's perfect justice." So that's the message but when Jesus comes back he's coming back to create that secure peace-filled world that will enable God's people to live with God forever without the threat of enemies constantly imposing on their freedom and their peace. A good king makes sure he defeats his enemies to create peace in his kingdom. I'm fond of the podcast of a man called Victor Davis Hanson I discovered a couple of years ago he's an American historian whose specialty is the history of warfare one of his specialties he wrote a magnificent book on the second world war and this is what he said he said starting wars is far easier than ending them winning and finishing a war depends on finding ways to end an enemy's ability to fight he goes on to say the Second World War, Second World War happened because the First World War wasn't, didn't finish properly. They didn't stop the German people from properly rearming. And they created conditions in which a maniac of Adolf Hitler could rise. The Second World War was the outgrowth of the First World War. It was really just a continuation. A good king will make sure that his enemies are completely vanquished. That's what we see in Isaiah 63. And it's likened to the treading out of wine from grapes. But it's a full and final, complete, putting aside, crushing of all opposition. But there's two ways of opposing God. You can do it actively or you can do it passively. You can be really, really angry and cross with God or you can just ignore him and pretend he doesn't exist. But both ways make you God's enemy because a king must be obeyed. And the reign of a king cannot be challenged. I've got one more Bible passage I'd love for you to have a look at. It's in Luke chapter 14. Jesus was telling, he was fond of telling stories because you can get a lot across through a story. But in Luke chapter 14, he asks a couple of questions. Luke chapter 14 at verse 31. He asks this question. He says, what king going out to encounter, encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Now, let's go back to the Mafra example. Imagine if Mafra was a walled city and we knew that an enemy was advancing on us and we could muster up an army of, what, 500? Imagine if the enemy was coming against us with 5,000. What would we do? Would we put up our dukes and say, bring it on? Or would we work out if there's a way that we could make peace with them? That would be the sensible thing, wouldn't it? This is a picture of what Jesus says it's like to take on God. God's coming with a much bigger army than you and I can muster. And if we continue to actively oppose him, or just to passively ignore him, when Jesus returns, we will find that God is our enemy. And we will pay in eternity for our decision to continue to oppose him or ignore him. Now, friends, I'm putting this out as plainly as I can, because I can't preach these words honestly if I don't tell you that this is serious. And it's about your soul. And it's about your eternal destiny, whether it's with Jesus in paradise or in hell without him. And if you've never thought about it, you need to now. Because if you're angry with God and his active opponent, you will meet him as an adversary that you cannot get away from. But if you continue to ignore him, you've ignored the king who gave you life and will one day demand an accounting for it. And that is just... It's perfectly fair, perfectly fair. When we give gifts, we like to see that they're used well, don't we? Where did you get your life from? God gave it to you. And so when he asks on judgment day, what did you do with it? The only answer that will pass is I gave it back to you because you are my king. So friends, Isaiah 63 is a picture of Jesus coming again. When he returns he will come as that king on the white horse who gets rid of all opposition to create a condition of peace and security that will last forever where justice and righteousness will reign and always be done and the conditions that deep down in our hearts we really want to see Jesus will create that but to create that condition for his people he has to get rid of every threat and he will. Because his reign will not be challenged. So which side are you on? You need to make your mind up today. Have you put your trust in Jesus? Have you said yes to Jesus? I need my sins forgiven. Make me righteous. Make me fit to live in your eternal kingdom. Or are you holding out? If you're holding out, you're a fool. Because you will meet God as an adversary that you cannot combat. Put your trust in Jesus today. Now, if you don't know how to do that, come and talk to me or come and... Talk to someone that you trust later, but it must be done and must be done soon because we don't know how long it will be before Jesus comes back. And so this is the time of waiting, of being tested, but of of, of coming to faith. Let's pray. Father in heaven, these are deep and powerful and sobering words and yet their meaning is very clear. And so I pray that you would write these, these truths deeply on our hearts. If there are people here this morning that have never known Jesus as Saviour and Lord, I pray that you would uh, stir them up, give them no rest till they find their rest in you. May they come to acknowledge you freely today as the, uh, as the King who deserves and, and demands complete obedience. But, but may it be that we find that in obedience to you is, is complete freedom and joy and peace. But, Father, for those of you who have put our trust in the Lord Jesus to take away our sins, I pray that you would help us to keep on living for him uh, joyously, uh, humbly, um, reverently, uh, but expectantly too, uh, with that confidence that knows that our sins are forgiven and we can face eternity uh, with you uh, with joy and hope. Uh, Father, I pray that you would use these words to uh, to speak powerfully to, our, to each of our needs today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. I mean